You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Community Church. If this is your first time, we extend to you a very special welcome and glad you chose to worship with us this morning. I'm Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here. I just wanted to mention a couple of things before we get started. First of all, everyone should know we have South Wake Bible Institute classes starting up in early September, starting up again. We're going to have three classes this year. One is how to help the hurting or share the shepherding. It's counseling. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a little bit beyond just normal discipleship, a little bit how to help people who are struggling. Uh, but discipleship is the primary focus. Then also how to interpret and teach the Bible. You, that would be a good thing to know, wouldn't it? So if, especially if you're a home group leader or you would like to be one, uh, you teach children how to interpret and teach the Bible. And then also a class in Romans, the book of Romans. So that is always a wonderful study. Um, And also, uh, I want to mention, if this is your first time here, Grace, uh, next week we kick off our potluck, our annual fall kickoff potluck. So if you're visiting for the first time and you're thinking you'd like to check out some other churches before you settle in, it may be advisable to wait until after next Sunday. Come next Sunday, after the second service, we're going to have a potluck, and we have some really great cooks, homemade banana pudding that you cannot imagine. Don't worry about me getting some. That's where I'll go first place, so you can have all you want. Uh, That and deviled eggs, we got to make sure everybody gets enough of those. So uh, please be here next week, and then, like I said, right after the second service, we'll have... Uh, our potluck. And then one last thing, on September 5 and 12, those are unusual dates. Uh, it's Thursday nights. We're going to have our next Grace Connection class. If you're interested in membership at Grace or you just want to understand a little bit more about what we believe, how we operate, how we function, uh, September 5 and 12, we're going to be having our Grace Connection class. This will be the only time we have it, like on a Thursday evening. Typically, it's going to be on Sunday morning. But we're doing it two classes on the 5th, two classes on the 12th this year. Well, if this is your first Sunday, I think that's about the third time I've said that, uh, it will be helpful for you to know, you may have already figured it out, that we're in a series in the Gospel of John. And today's text, you're coming in right in the middle of this thing. Today's text is John 8, verses 31 through 59. The title of the message is taken from Jesus' famous claim to deity when the uh, Pharisees were debating and saying, you're talking about Abraham, you're not even 50 years old, what are you, nuts or something? And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, or I exist. 
the Jewish leaders considered this blasphemy, so they picked up stones to stone him, although they failed to kill him at that time. So near the end of his gospel, the apostle John tells us why, it, why he wrote the book. In John 20, 30 and 31, we're told that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, it's interesting, uh, in 1 John chapter 5, at the end of that letter that John wrote to the churches, he said, the reason I have written to you is so that you may know that you have eternal life, assurance of eternal life. Here, he's saying, I'm writing these things so you'll know what you need to believe and that you might believe. The first 12 chapters of John are all about answering the question, who is Jesus and why is it essential that we make a decision whether or not we are going to follow him and what does it mean to believe in him? In chapters 13 to 16, when we get there, uh, we're going to see Jesus on the night before he was crucified teaching his disciples how they should live after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension back to heaven, they were like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I don't like this idea. You're talking about leaving. Jesus is saying, well, I'm going. The Holy Spirit is coming, and and here is how you are to live. And when we get to the middle of John 15, we're going to see Jesus saying to his disciples, because you are not of uh, of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, that's not necessarily the kind of thing that you want to hear you'd love for people to say hey you're a Christian that's awesome I was a hippie long hair the whole business everybody wanted me to change my life I got saved and they said we didn't want you to get that saved you know cut the hair just start living completely different And, and people are not necessarily happy when you start following Jesus and and living the way that he has called us to live because I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Then in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And then in 27, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So here's the pattern. The way they treated Jesus, that's the way they're going to treat his followers. But we are called to bear witness in the same manner that he did. So why think about John 15 when we're in John 8? Because the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees in John 8 informs our interaction with the world uh, about Jesus. When we talk about Jesus Some of the same kind of stuff is going on. So this is a good place for us to be aware of what is at stake. We could wait to 15 and then look back to John 8 and say, oh, this is what he's talking about when you're witnessing like this. But let's go ahead and and think about that now. So when we state our belief in Jesus, there are going to be some angry accusations about our belief. Accusations that we think and live and call others to live differently than the current zeitgeist to the, to the cultural state of affairs. 
and, and, and people don't like that. The days of, hey, look, I don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, but if that's what you believe, that's cool. Those days are rapidly coming to an end. People don't like to hear that at all anymore. Uh, there are many who are convinced if you don't agree with, celebrate, even celebrate their beliefs, then you're narrow-minded and to be avoided. The Jesus of the Bible, once you get to know him, is not popular in our time. Now, anyone who meets the Jesus of the Bible, who puts their faith in him, recognizes the beautiful things that Jeff stated this morning at communion, how blessed we are to be brought into a family in which we know that our sins are forgiven. We understand that our communion is with God and with brothers and sisters in Christ and that he has given us everything that we need for godliness. He saved us and given us a hope for all eternity. So, the recent defections from evangelical Christianity by leaders of the movement remind us that we must thoroughly answer the question. Look, i got to be honest with you. I, I think, man, I'm preaching the same thing week after week after week because it's in the Gospel of John, and there's a part of me that wants to start getting to, okay, how is it we're supposed to live? But really, when you think about it, None of that matters until we answer this question, until we thoroughly answer this question. Who is Jesus and why is believing in him or not believing in him such a big deal? Here's the plan for today. We're going to work our way through John 8, verses 31 to 59. <clears throat> then afterwards, we'll find application from both John 8 and 15. One points to the other. Typically, we would stand and read at least a portion of the text, but it's a long text, and we're going to begin with the explanation. So I'll, I'll ask you to remain seated, and if you would, though, bow with me as we begin our time in prayer. Well, Father, <laughs> we... I pray that as we look into your word today, <clears throat> that we might do so with a sense of the gravity that is required of all who hear the words of Jesus. Open our hearts and give us faith. Make us believe. And as we believe, Lead us by the Holy Spirit to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ according to the word of God. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. Well, I almost said thanks and be seated. It's just one of those things, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm old and I'm into routine. I can't tell you how many times I'm talking to somebody on the phone and I have to stop myself from saying, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> One of these days it'll happen. Uh, you may be the lucky uh, caller when it does happen. Uh, last week's sermon covered a portion of the debate between Jesus and the religious leaders, primarily the Pharisees. The Sadducees were in there too, but primarily the Pharisees. At, at the Feast of Tabernacles, this fall, uh, annual fall harvest in Jerusalem, you, you'll need to go back to the last three weeks 
uh, messages to get the full context if you're interested. Along the way, verse 30 tells us that some believed Jesus' message. And then Jesus said to them, he's debating the Pharisees, and over here, some people believe, and he turns over and says, you will truly be my disciples if you abide in my word. This is the test of discipleship. Do you remain in me? And do you listen to my word, dig into my word, and stay there for years on end? Uh, while many perceive Christianity to be restrictive, Jesus characterizes his followers as the only true free people in the world. The Pharisees were not pleased. Now remember, the Pharisees were over here. Jesus is talking over here. And he says, you will be free. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So they overheard this, this debate between Jesus and the Pharisees. And they believed he's talking to them. But immediately, they were offended. <clears throat> remember this. When someone challenges you, especially publicly, when someone challenges you about your faith in Christ, your conversation with him or her may not have any impact on him or her at all. But it could very well be that people who are listening are thinking, wow, you know that? There's something to that. I think there's something to that. The Pharisees knew that Jesus was referencing spiritual freedom based on a relationship with Yahweh. So they immediately, we, they reacted. <coughs> We're Abraham's offspring. We're God's chosen people. We have never been slaves. How dare you say this to us? And Jesus responded, you practice sin. Thus, you are slaves. And slaves are not permanent members of the household the son remains forever. It's interesting that the Pharisees could find ways to say that they were blameless, that they had no sin at all. But remember, Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I used to be <laughs> a Pharisee, not following Jesus at all, but, a, but, but according to the law, I was blameless. They had ways of working it out in their minds that they were essentially perfect. They'd never broken this command, never broken that command, or maybe not since they were children. But Jesus said, you are sinners, and thus you are slaves. The son, it is the Son of God who brings others into the family by his sacrifice on the cross. And so, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. You will be free indeed. When Jesus identified the Pharisees, as slaves to sin, I imagine that they were not only shocked, but many of the people hearing this conversation were also scandalized. I mean, everybody knew that the Pharisees were at the front of the line getting into heaven. It's just like, man, I just want to hang on to <coughs> your coattails and maybe I can get dragged into heaven along with you. These were exceptionally good people. And when Jesus identified them as sinners who needed to be set free, their sinful nature came out. They were furious. But they were thinking of sin superficially. <laughs> like they thought of almost everything superficially. Sinful deeds are the result of the sinful condition. 
And Jesus promised deliverance from the sinful state. So he's not saying, I will deliver you from adultery. They're like, what are you talking about? I'm not living in adultery. I'll deliver you from your sin of murdering. I'm not murdering. Jesus was saying, I will deliver you from the sinful state if you will believe. But again, very few of these guys were going to believe. But the crowd was listening, listening to everything. Uh, Jesus accused them of being slaves to the sin that they deny. Uh, this has been for a long time a huge criticism of believers. Uh, it, it will be going forward as well. Are you saying that I am a sinner because... And then fill in the blank. And, and just like this debate, a lot of the, <coughs> the conversations that we have with other people, <coughs> they're going to pick up and ask us questions based on things that we haven't said. They assume that we're saying one thing and jump right in. In the same ways that the Pharisees had manipulated the law to fit their lifestyles and assure their control over the issues of the day, so in our time, even though people are not, you wouldn't think of them as very religious, nonetheless, people want to converse, fashion the conversation about what is sin and what is not. But we don't get to choose what is sinful and what is not. If you're going to proclaim the gospel, you cannot make the Bible say what you want it to say. So if calling sin, sin is a deal breaker for you, better to decide now. As Mike Calhoun used to say, you need to make a decision about a decision before you're called on to make a decision. He, used, he, he was talking to his teenagers when he said it, and he was essentially saying, when somebody says, hey, let's go to this party, there's a lot of beer, going to get drunk, have a great time, you, need, you don't need to be saying, let me think about this. I don't know. You, you make that decision ahead of time. You make the decisions about Jesus ahead of time. You make the decisions about what is sin, what is not, based on the word <laughs> ahead of time so that you don't have to when you're called to give an answer. So when someone says, are you saying that you think that what I'm doing is sinful? You need to already know what you're going to say. Now be gentle. We're not Jesus. We're not perfect. Right? And all of our efforts are to be done in love and compassion and trying to, <clears throat> to help a, a, a blind person to make his way along the path. If, if, if I were blind and I, I, I stumbled down these steps, would you say, idiot, what are you doing? No, of course you wouldn't. You'd, go, you'd come running to help. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's the way we need to approach sinners. But we must tell the truth. I mean, if a, if a blind person says, I hope it's not rocks ahead because I don't like rocks. Are you doing them a favor by saying, no, no, it's a real smooth path? No, you need to tell them the truth. It's rocks, but I'm going to help you over these rocks. Well, after this exchange, let me say this. It's, it's the last line of the paragraph. I've got to say it. You must speak the truth. 
if you are a true disciple. So after this exchange, the conversation became increasingly testy. Jesus acknowledged that they belonged to God's covenant family, but if they had a personal relationship with Yahweh, they wouldn't be trying to kill him. Jesus, who was sent by the Father and the one to whom all Scripture pointed. Jesus told them that they belonged to another father, not to his father. Back and forth. Abraham is our father. If you were Abraham's children, you would, not, you would be doing the works Abraham did, not trying to kill me. Now, this is an interesting argument uh, from Jesus. You'll recall that on two occasions, Abraham and Sarah were coming into a new country, Egypt, and then to the land where Abimelech ruled. And, 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 and as they were entering the land, Abraham said, now, Sarah, you're pretty hot for 80 years old. And, and Pharaoh's going to notice this, and he's going to kill me. And, and, well, it's just the way it is. He's going to kill me. And, and take you, so please do me a favor and tell him you're my sister. So she's like, okay. And then God rebuked Abraham, but he also rebuked Pharaoh. He rebuked Abimelech. And this is the way God works. Of all things, he sent him out wealthier than when he came in. Blessings when, when Abraham ought to be cursed. That's our God. So is, would you do that? I doubt it. I doubt it seriously. Would, the Pharisees absolutely would not have <clears throat> done that. And so Jesus is saying, you need to be doing Abraham's work. They're probably thinking, we're Abraham's children, but we're a lot better <clears throat> than he was. But Jesus is saying, you don't measure up to Abraham. What, what gives? Let's put a few things together. You'll recall in John 6, 29, that Jesus said that the work of God is to believe on the one that God had sent. That would be Jesus. So this was a transition period, right? In the Old Testament, people were saved by keeping the law. In the New Testament, people were saved by believing Jesus. After the cross, we now know <clears throat> that you're saved by repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus' death on the cross as a sacrifice for your sins. But this was kind of in a transition period, right? Well, no. The scripture says that all are saved by believing the promises of God. We have a much clearer understanding of what the promises of God are after the cross. But before the cross, Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, 6 says, and it was counted to him, or God counted it to him as righteousness. So when Jesus said that the Pharisees were not doing the works that Abraham did, he was accusing them of being so arrogant that they refused to acknowledge their sinful state. And if you can't acknowledge your sinful state, there's no way you're going to believe that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In verse 41, Jesus said that they were doing the same works, the Pharisees were doing the same works <coughs> that their father did. And they shot back immediately, we're not born illegitimately. We're not born from sexual immorality. 
They were acknowledging that they both knew and believed the rumors that Jesus was an illegitimate child. They didn't know enough or they didn't know about the virgin birth, of course, but they did know enough about Jesus' lineage to thoroughly investigate his claim to be the Messiah. But if they did that, they might find evidence that wouldn't fit their narrative. So instead, they just hurled insults at him and said that he had no right to speak about spiritual matters. It's making sense. In verse 42, we are presented with the truth that we need to accept and affirm at the deepest levels of our soul this particular truth if we hope to survive the challenges to our belief. You cannot love God if you do not love Jesus. You cannot love God if you do not love Jesus. There are lots of people who talk about having faith in God. But if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, then God is not your father. It's not mean-spirited. It's true. And it, this is an age by all means. Don't tell the truth if it's going to hurt somebody's feelings. We're grateful doctors don't function that way. But Christians are surely expected to function that way. It's not mean-spirited to say, unless you know Jesus, you do not belong to God. It's true. We should be careful how we present this truth when we're called to defend our beliefs, but believe it and speak it. We must if we belong to Jesus. Why do people refuse to hear the gospel? Verse 43, they cannot bear to hear God's word about sin and the need for deliverance and abiding in him. In verse 44, Jesus speaks the harsh reality. If God is not your father, then the devil is. While he was speaking this truth to the Pharisees, it is once again true for all of us. If we don't believe in God the Father through Christ, then we belong to Satan. In fact, for the first 1,000 years of the church, <clears throat> the primary view of the purpose of the cross was to ransom. God paid a price to ransom us back from Satan. And there is some truth in that. We don't talk about it a whole lot now. But all the time you hear about ransom and redemption, God is buying us. But he's buying us back in a sense. We were lost to sin. And Satan, the God of this world, has dominion over this world and in a, and, and in a sense over us. But we are redeemed through <clears throat> the blood of Christ. We <clears throat> belong either to God or to Satan. There is no middle ground. Again, not the point necessarily you want to emphasize when you share the gospel. Hey, Ben, you're a child of the devil. 
Don't you want to be a child of God through Christ? Now, you, you, that's not the way you probably should witness. But it's true, and we need to, it, needs, it should compel us to share Christ. Uh, here is what Michael Horton says about this verse and how it forms our understanding of God and his ways. Quote, the one option that is not left to you when you read this verse is to conclude that Jesus preached the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. The Jesus of the Bible is nothing like the Jesus of American culture. Jesus said, I am not talking about good and bad. I am the reference point and the way to God. It's an audacious claim, but it's true. And then Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees, you are lying. And one of the things that frustrated him so much, i got to remember, Pharisees are here, people are here, is that these guys were leading these guys astray. Can't have that. From the beginning, Satan lied to Eve and assured her that she would not die if she ate of the forbidden fruit. Now, Jesus accuses the Pharisees of the exact same sin. And furthermore, in, in verse 49, Jesus gives the reason that they do not believe him. You are not of God. It's the same truth Jesus articulated back in John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus is like, you don't understand this, but of course you don't understand this. You don't belong to God. Do not be surprised when you are opposed <clears throat> as you stand for the truth. <clears throat> the Pharisees tried to turn the tables on Jesus and say, you're demon-possessed. In short order, Jesus responded, I don't have a demon. I honor my father. But you dishonor me, the one he sent. So in so doing, you dishonor him. Then another extremely important verse in, verse, in, in 51. And whenever Jesus says, truly, truly, it's important. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. When Jesus says we should keep his word, he means that we are to believe his word and treasure his word and act on his word so that we might have eternal life. Who says something like that? Either Jesus was who he said he was or he was indeed demon-possessed. The Pharisees declared him demon-possessed crazy because he said that a person who believes in him would never see death. And instead of saying, now, explain that to me, they're just saying, well, what about Abraham? He died, right? He died. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Then at the end of verse 53, they ask the right question, but they don't ask it in good faith. Who do you make yourself out to be? I mean, they're saying it like, instead of, who are you exactly? They're saying, who do you make yourself out? How, what gives you the right to say these things? All this time, the Pharisees have been looking for justification before the people that would allow them to pull Jesus out, have him executed by the Romans. 
without causing a riot. Jesus was getting close to meeting the standard that they had set in their minds. But Jesus contrasted himself with the Pharisees by saying, I'm not seeking my own glory. And the implication is, you are. Jesus was not a simple human being, but the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. Speaking of Abraham, Jesus said in verse 56, he rejoiced over my day and God's plan for my day. Then in verses 57 to 59, so the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, which was symbolic, by the way. I don't have time to go into the grammatical evidence for what I'm about to say, but know this. This is the clear-cut claim to divinity that the Pharisees have been waiting for. It sent them over the edge. And while there are many strong linguistic ties between John 8:58 to uh, Isaiah 40 through 55, the second portion of Isaiah, uh, there is an equally strong tie, especially in the Septuagint, to Exodus 3:14, where maybe not equally, but there is a, a, also a strong tie to Exodus 3:14, where from the burning bush, God answered Moses' question about who am I going to tell the Israelites? has sent me to deliver them. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said to them, or said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. If you've ever seen a movie in which the scene in Exodus 3 is depicted, uh, you probably heard a voice coming from the burning bush, but that's it. It's like a voice, or sometimes they have this face I am this, that, or the other. You may have missed in your reading in Exodus 3, 2, we're told that the angel of the Lord stood in the middle of the bush and spoke. As it goes on, it says that the Lord spoke to him. God spoke to him. So Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, I was the one speaking to Moses. Moses, in the midst of the bush, I am God. The connections to Revelation 4 and 5 are astonishingly joyful. So check them out when you have time. So with all of this, five thoughts, and I may just have time to list them instead of comment on them. I'll comment just a little bit. Five thoughts about the way we share Christ with others And look, the more committed we are to sharing the gospel, the more committed to humility we must be. Don't arrogantly say these things. First of all, there are two paths in life. This is something we have to just settle in our minds. There are two paths in life. They are marked by belief in Jesus or by unbelief. It's not conservative or liberal. It's not capitalist or socialist. It's not good or not so good. It's those who believe in Jesus and everybody else. That's what Jesus said. And if we're not settled on this point, we're going to struggle to tell others that Jesus is the only way. Second, almost all who are convinced that they are good people hate the gospel. 
from our perspective, we cannot understand why in the world wouldn't you just say, I'm a sinner. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. I throw myself at your mercy. But we forget that we walk in light and they walk in darkness like we once did. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us that the God of this world or Satan has blinded the eyes of those who do not believe. The good news is when we share the gospel and the Holy Spirit convicts people of their sins, they may well uh, put their trust in Jesus. Third, if we do not share the truth about Jesus with others, we're not simply wasting time. We're doing harm. The big issues of life and eternity are always on people's minds, whether you perceive it or not. People are always thinking about these big issues of life. I'm not saying that every encounter you have with another individual is an opportunity to share the gospel. Sometimes it's a good opportunity, sometimes it's not. Furthermore, most people receive the gospel in bits and pieces. And frankly, that's the way it's laid out in Scripture. You can go to a verse here and there and say the whole gospel is here. But if you're going to present the Roman road, you're going to 323, 623, 5, 8, 10, 9, and 10. You know, you're all over the place. That's the way the Scripture presents it. That's why it's important that we understand all of the gospel. And like Michael Horton says, the implications of the gospel are so broad... You can jump in anywhere and help people understand what it means to be belong to Jesus. The point I'm making here is this. People are hungry for spiritual truth, even if they passionately seek to disprove it. If you, may, if you say nothing, they may never be confronted with the truth. So ask God for opportunities to share at least a portion of the gospel. Ask him to be the one to do the work in people's hearts. And ask him for wisdom. Ask him for courage when he provides the opportunity. Fourth, to conform the gospel to the culture is to deny the gospel. To make the gospel say what the culture wants it to say is to deny the gospel. We're all the way back to the first point. Two paths. You believe Jesus and what he said, or you don't. It is stunning how clever people are in making the Bible say something that, oh, the culture says that? Guess what? The Bible says that too. Let me just show you right here. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't be relevant and that we should not seek to contextualize the gospel. We should. But we have desired to be relevant for so long that the lines have become blurred. And the culture has such a hold on the church that many people are, are, are beginning to think, you know, the voices in the world make more sense to me than the voices in the church. I can no longer believe what I have believed. And in fact, I apologize for calling the culture out because people have been hurt by my words. Believing the gospel, following Jesus, should make us the best family members, the best neighbors, the best employees, the best citizens, and the most compassionate witnesses. But we follow one who requires all our devotion, no matter how different his ways are from the world's ways. Do not... Deny the gospel by seeking to impress or mollify 
the culture in denying truth. Last, <clears throat> to suffer for the sake of the gospel is to commune with Jesus at the highest levels. When Stephen was stoned in Acts 7, <clears throat> the heavens opened and he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. In Acts 23, when Paul was thrown in prison in Jerusalem, Jesus came to his servant and encouraged him. The Lord always meets us in his suffering. And in fact, Philippians 3.10 goes to the heart of the matter. Paul is saying, my desire is that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And I may share his sufferings and become like him in his death. Because he understood that to suffer well is to commune with Jesus at a level you don't find anywhere else. Let's pray. So here's the question. Have you answered this question in your mind? Who is Jesus? First, do you know him as your Savior? <clears throat> Have you confessed your sins and asked Jesus to save you? If not, call on him and you will find him to be merciful. He will save you. Believers, are you tempted to soften the gospel so that you can live more peaceably in the world? Our peace is with Jesus. And he calls us to be bold as we tell others about him. And especially, 1 Peter tells us, as we are called to give a reason for the hope that is within us. So right now, believers, would you just pray this prayer? Lord Jesus, my life is yours. Increase my faith as I commit to seek you in your word. Lord, give me opportunities to share the gospel with those who do not know Jesus. And give me courage when I am opposed. Because I believe your word. Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Thank you for loving me and bringing me into the family and into the household of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.